podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to this evening's episode of the 1871 Podcast. It's me, Johnny Hunt, presenting this evening. And my special guest is ex-Royal and current Slough Town Manager, Scott Davies. Welcome, Scott. Hi, Johnny. How are you doing, mate? Good, mate. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Um, obviously, the off-season, as you just mentioned then, being a manager, very different from being a player. Um, as a player, I could put my feet up and relax, but it's been hectic, it's been manic, but enjoyable at the same time. So, yeah, it's been a good summer so far. Happy days and sun's out. <laughs> yeah. So going back, Scott, back to the back to the start of your career at Reading. I, I'm correct that you joined from Wickham and came through sort of the youth that the Royals working with, with under um, Koppel initially, and then um, in the first team with Brendan Rogers. I just want to talk about that experience for you. Then making your debut against Forest, I think, wasn't it in the league? Yeah, it was. So I was a 14-year-old at Wickham Wanderers and Nas Bashir was one of the academy coaches that had just joined the club. And I guess that he was a big fan of mine when he was a manager at Wickham. And he wanted to take me over to Reading. Uh, but obviously at 14, you can't just walk out of a football club. There has to be uh, compensation and everything paid. So um, Nick Hammond came and watched me play for my school team, believe it or not. Um, I think we won the game 15 nil. I didn't score, believe it or not, yet again. Um, but I obviously did enough to sort of warrant a trial. And then I was on trial for about three months um, because I was suffering with sort of stress fractures in my back. And then long story short, uh, they paid the compensation fee, moved over at 16 into Diggs in Reading, um, which was, yeah, it was, a, it was a bit of a rude awakening, really, being away from your mum and dad at the first time. Uh, miss your friends, miss your family. Living in Diggs was tough. Um, and then obviously went through the youth team, um, watched the success of the first team who were incredible. When you look back now, you probably only start to appreciate it so many years on. Um, obviously like the 106 team and things like that. And then, yeah, made my debut after a couple of successful loans at Aldershot, um, under Brendan Rogers, made my debut. And then, uh, yeah, obviously things came to a head for one reason or another, but I ended up being at the club for nine years. Um, seven of those years were full time. I've got, Probably, I'm quite open and honest about my career, um, but I've probably got a lot of regrets when it comes to Reading. Um, I felt like I was given a great opportunity and never really took it as seriously as I should. Um, okay. I thought, probably thought it was going to last forever. And in the weirdest of ways, I've had some really nice messages over the last few years um, since people have found out about my story and how things turned out in my life. Um, and they said to me in so many messages from different people that I've never met that... Um, like we really enjoyed watching you. We had high hopes for you. You were doing brilliantly at the time and all of these sorts of things. And then all of a sudden one day that was it. And um, yeah, but it is what it is. I can't change the past. I know my, my memory fails me at an old age, but did, am I right that you scored that free kick against Chelsea in the friendly? Yeah. So obviously that, and then made my debut against Nottingham Forest the following week, um, got man of the match. And then we played, I believe Newcastle away. I played 90 minutes in that. And yeah. I did okay, bearing in mind we lost 3-0. Um, I think the following game we played Swansea. I think I think it was like Sheffield United. So I played in all four of the games. Um, but one of the games in between that was the Carling Cup game. And I was actually rested for it. Um, Brendan said to me at the time, he's like, we're, we're not going to play you, we're going to rest you. And that's a massive compliment to a young player at the time. Yeah. Because you think, well, they're saving my legs for the league. And, and he did. Um, and they played Gilfie Sigurdsson instead. And that was probably the worst thing that ever happened to me. So, um, yeah, no, obviously a fantastic player, like incredible player. Um, and I'm not saying that was the, the sole reason why I lost my place in the team. There were other things that went on, which obviously I can allude to, I'm sure, later on. Um, but 
yeah, I'm, I'm just so grateful that as a young boy growing up, I think if someone had said to me at five or six years old, you're going to play in front of 25,000 people at Medeski or 45,000 people at Newcastle away, I would have ripped their hand off. So I'm yeah. grateful for what I've achieved rather than maybe what I should have achieved. And what, like, you know, for anyone like a fan like myself and other people, making that debut at Reading and coming out, how were you feeling like before the game? When did you know you were going to be playing and, and, the build-up, you know, like a bag of nerves, or was like, no, fine. It was strange, really, because I'd had a really good pre-season. Um, we went away to uh, Sweden. I remember, like, the Reading Post um, gave me, like, player of the tour and all of this sort of stuff. And then I'd scored a few goals out there. The following week, scored against Chelsea. Um, and I felt like I was ready. So when they named the team on the Friday, I remember James Harper coming up to me um, after training and he grabbed me around the shoulder, put his hand out, he shook my hand and he said, congratulations, mate. He said to get in the first team of the season um, like, is a massive achievement. Yeah. Um, and I probably didn't think that it was possible. I didn't think that it was going to happen. Um, but I remember Harper saying that to me and it, it really gave me a lot of confidence um, that I didn't have an older pro that I respected so much and looked up to because I did. Um, he sort of gave me the um, initiative to kind of go out there and do well. It wasn't yeah. sort of like a bit of a bit of feeling from him where he wasn't happy for me. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a day that I remember sort of vividly um, waking up in the morning. I had my usual fry up that I did at my mum and dad's. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and then walking out, we drew the game nil-nil um, and I probably should have scored. And I remember Brendan saying to me a few weeks or a few months into the season before he, before he got sacked, um, if you'd have scored on your debut, everything might have been different. And I, I look back, I've watched the game since and I should have scored. Um, yeah. There was one chance that dropped out to me, sort of in line with the penalty spot at a little angle and I blazed it over the bar. But the actual game, I played really well. Um like getting man of the match and things like that. And there was, you know, you read the papers at the time because that's what players do. Yeah, um, I remember the reports being really positive and yeah, I felt like I belonged there to be honest. And it's, um, it's one of those ones where, I, yeah, things happen for a reason. And um, yeah, I felt like I should have made more of it, but I'm not one of those people that want to sit in a pub in 10, 15 years time and said, oh, I should have played in the Premier League or I should have yeah. played 200 games in the championship because I realised how difficult it is to maintain those standards and my standards of living uh, and being professional just weren't up to scratch. And working under Brendan, uh, you know, she's gone on to have a great career. He didn't didn't do too well with us, did he, as manager? He got sacked. But what was he? What was he like to to work under? Incredible, um, incredible. So he was obviously my youth team manager when I first joined as a scholar. Um, I remember him sitting us down after about three or four months. Don't even know if it was that long, and saying that he's been offered a job at Chelsea and that he has to go. So we were all gutted because we absolutely yeah. loved him as a as a youth team manager. He was brilliant. Um, came back in his first team manager and for someone to give him my debut, having been at the club for so long myself, never thought it was going to happen. And he gave it to me in his first competitive game. So I'll be forever grateful. In terms of his coaching, outstanding. Um, he's way and above anything else that I've seen in the professional game. Um, just his methods of madness, um, the way that he sort of man manages, brilliant as well. Um, but then I've heard a lot of players at during their time at Reading, they've kind of hammered him and thrown him under the bus. But I don't think he got enough time, to be honest. I don't think he was able to recruit the right type of players for what he wanted. Yeah. Um, he kind of got given a bag of players and said, right, do the best that you can with it. And I honestly believe that if they'd have given him more time, he would have been successful because it wasn't really his team. Um, there's a, probably a few players in there that I'm sure he wouldn't have picked he wanted people that could deal with the football and we had maybe a few people in there that should have wanted to run head it kick yeah. it um, so it was a little bit of a um, a mixed bag I'd say Yeah 
And I mean, he's, had, he's gone to have a great career, isn't he? And hopefully, he'll, you know, he'll get another job again. But but you said going back to where you're saying that you didn't feel you did enough. Like I know you played four games and then you went out and loaned again, didn't you? Yeah. How how like what happened for you, or how is it? You know, you said about Guilfi coming in and that kind of set you aside. But for you personally, yeah. So um, I'm not saying it was the sole reason, but I lied to the manager one day about why I was sort of getting into training late and why I was leaving early, and I got found out. And we travelled to Barnsley that weekend and I expected to start the game. I don't know if I was naive or not. Um, but Michael Antonio was sharing with me at the time in the room on the Friday night. And he said, I can't believe they've dragged me all the way up here to be the 19th man. You know, in case anyone comes injured or ill overnight, he'll take their place on the bench. They flipped over the flip chart and my name wasn't on there. And I thought, this is weird. Like, why am I not starting? So I looked at the bench and lo and behold, Michael's name was on there rather than me. And I remember sitting in the stand at Barnsley. My parents had turned up um, at the game and my dad said, why aren't, you, why aren't you starting? I said, I don't know. And I knew the real reason why is because I'd lied to the manager during the week and it's something you don't do. I'm not saying that that's the reason why I never played another game for the club. Obviously, performances and things like that um, would have a big part to play in it. But I was struggling with a gambling problem that I just didn't speak about for a long, long time. Um, I was getting into training a couple of minutes before I needed to arrive. Everyone else gets there at nine o'clock if you need to be there for 10. That's just the way that football is. I was getting there at 9.58, 9.59. Um, and as soon as training was over, I was straight back in the car and going back to the bookmakers. Whereas you've probably got your Jem Carajans, your Simon Church, your Alex Pierce that tre- treated the training ground like it was their home. They were there in the morning doing their extras. They were there in the afternoon doing their extras. And you look at players like that that have gone on to have unbelievably good careers. They deserve it. Um and at the time, I used to look at them and think, oh, they're so busy. Like, there's more to life than football. Go home, go and do whatever you need to do. Go shopping, go and play your computer games, whatever excites you. But they were just relentless in the way that they lived. Um, and I still speak to Jem and people like that every now and again. Um, and you, you just can't fault them. You really can't. There are They're honest, good role models for young players. And I wouldn't say that I was. You said there about the, the gambling issues, Scott, and I, I know you've been very vocal about it in recent times. And I read that you lost two hundred thousand. How how did that start, and then become a problem? And when you realised it was a problem, you did something. It was a, a process. Yeah. yeah, So when I moved into Diggs in Reading, obviously a lot of time on your hands, boredom, um, away from your friends and family. Um, I started to do it when I was living in Calcott. So I walked up the hill one day to Tylerst and I walked into a coral bookmaker and I lost £50 for the first time in my life. I'd never lost a penny before gambling. And even though I lost the £50, I kind of enjoyed it because of the rush, the buzz, the thrill that it gives you. And then I found myself doing it every single week. And my parents were then sort of subsidising me to get to training. Um, Some mornings I'd walk to training because we were training at uh, Bradfield College which was just across the motorway and up the hill. I say just across the motorway and up the hill, it's a long walk. Um, But I was walking there to get there. And it's moments like that, mornings like that, where you think, what is going on? And this clearly wasn't conducive for the life of a footballer. Obviously, as the success came with football and I'd been on loan to Aldershot, um, I went from £400 a week to £2,000 a week within a month. And at the age of sort of 19, 20, how do you live with that money? I was earning more than sort of my parents put together. Um, I didn't have any bills. Um, I had to pay for my car, which was a few hundred quid a month. And obviously that disposable income, it just all went on gambling. So 
um yeah the more and more money i got the bets became bigger became more problematic i became um more sort of uh secretive in the way that i was living my life started to get myself into debt um started stealing money off my parents um i was getting my agent to sell boot uh, send boots to the football club and i was selling them to the youth team for sort of 20 30 pound and these are like 200 pound pairs of football boots because I knew that if I could get 20, 30 quid off a young lad, I might be able to turn that into a thousand pound in the bookmakers. So it just became a life of exhaustion. And that's the best way that I can describe it. After, after 10 and a half years, I finally held my hands up. I kind of sort of waved the white flag. Um, I gambled around 900,000 pound, I estimate, um, and lost around 250,000 pound in total. So as you can imagine, it was, it was something that went on a lot. Um, and it went on for too long, but. Once I kind of dropped out of the professional game, I realised that I needed to do something about it and then ended up in rehab the 26 nights in 2015 because not only my gambling was in a bad place, but my mental health and my sort of well-being was at rock bottom. And did, when, when you were playing, did anyone know, like your, your, your teammates, managers, or did they have anything, or is it just that don't go there kind of conversation? It's bravado. So like every time that someone says to you... Um, like any winners yesterday or how's your gambling going you just pretend and go yeah doing all right doing all right because you don't want to turn around to people and say actually do you know what i'm skint i've got no money left for the month my mum's paying for me to get to training i've maxed out all my credit cards my overdraft can't get any bigger um i've feigned illness or uh, sickness to miss training because sometimes i couldn't afford to get there I've pretended to break down on motorways on the M40. Uh, when I was at Crawley, I lied to the manager. I said I'd broken down because I knew that I didn't have enough fuel to get to training. And the problem with that was that when I didn't have enough fuel in my account, my mum used to transfer money over, but they were on holiday in Egypt. And I thought if I get on the M25, I'm done. I, I know I'm going to break down. Couldn't get hold of my parents. And I thought I've got to ring the manager and say that I'm ill. So it's it's things like that that just don't bode well. Um, obviously, just living a life of complete deceit and lie. Um, and I look back now and think, how did I kind of let it go on for so long? But the problem is, is once you're in the midst of addiction, it's really difficult to get out of it. And in the weirdest of ways, I loved I loved the gambling whilst I was doing it, but I just hated how it made me feel after. And like, I mean, that's a huge thing to have to carry around when you know, as for your playing side of things, like, you know. Did it did it really impact on you the game for you when you were playing, or is it kind of constantly there? Yeah, it's a really good question, Johnny. I think I think when I crossed that white line, I felt as though I was free, um, but subconsciously, I don't think I was. When I look back now, because my performance has definitely deteriorated over the few years that I was gambling at my at my worst. Um, I sort of reflect back on a time when I was at Oxford United and I signed a what I consider to be a big club. I'm sure Reading fans won't agree. Um, <laughs> but I, I was just a passenger. Um, I didn't really impact the games I was playing. I think I played 40-odd games for them. Um, but I wasn't I wasn't doing what Scott Davis was used to doing, sort of like high energy, scoring goals, getting around the pitch. Um, because I'd stay awake all night and I'd gamble on sports around the world till sort of four or five in the morning, get a couple of hours kip and then go to the game. Um, and there's only so long that you can get away with that for being a professional footballer. I'm competing against people at the time that are playing at the, their sort of optimum, um, their maximum levels and living on two hours sleep a night or not eating proper dinners, um, all things like this, sleeping in my car after training when I was at Crawley. And I reflect back now, I think to myself, why did no one get hold of me? And you're probably thinking the same. My parents tried so many times, like yeah. countless number of times, but I would just push 
their help away. Um, because at the end of every month, I knew that I was getting paid a good whack and I could start all over again. But um, yeah, through addiction, a lot of the time you don't want the help until you actually need it. And that's the, that's the craziest thing. Whereas I'm sure we'll touch on it in a bit, but the job that I do now going around to football clubs and speaking to people about gambling problems, um, telling my story and hope that other people come forward. We don't, ha- we didn't have any of that during my time when I was playing football. So me being able to give back in that sort of, um, in that sort of uh, line of work is great because it combines my passion with helping people with gambling whilst going into football clubs. Whereas I've, what I've missed out on probably for the last 10 years, um, being able to go in and train, but it keep, still keeps me in the mix and keeps me in the loop with a lot of ex-teammates and managers. But we definitely need to do more about it, not just in football, but in society as well. It's a huge, huge problem. Yeah, and I say like now, I'm obviously, you know, again, it's not that long ago you were playing, but the, the amount of money in football now is huge for, for for young players, isn't it? Coming in at you know at, at a good level, and like you've got, like you say, footballers have a lot of spare time on their hands, don't they? How how do you you know with with, with the, the the focus that you're working with, what kind of how how do you help them? I know it's a pretty dark question, but what you know what advice do you give to someone? And, and like even if somebody's watching this, if somebody's got a, a problem with gambling, what what could they do? How how can they get help? Do you know the thing is, so you can go and see a, a counsellor if you've got a drug problem, an alcohol problem, a gambling problem. They may not have lived the same life as the person that sat opposite. So if I went into a rehab service like I did, I was very, very fortunate. I was speaking to someone that was a recovering gambling addict and he understood me. I don't speak Spanish, right? But it was like we were speaking Spanish to each other because I was like, I do this, I do that. I've done this, I've done that. And he was like, I've done all those things. He's like, I understand why you do them. Whereas if you put a footballer in front of someone that's never lived that life, they find it really hard to relate to them. Um, as soon as you put myself in front of a group of young lads, all of a sudden the ones that have issues think, do you know what? I can listen to him because I understand where he's been. He's lived the same life as I have. And it makes them feel comfortable. So it takes the pressure off them that they're going to get judged because they're certainly not. Because um, most of the stories that they tell me, I've probably done them 10 times worse. Um, and then I just say to people, listen, you need to do something about it. Otherwise, your career will end up like mine and it will finish sooner than you realise. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. I think the reason why there's a lot of footballers that do have issues with it is because of the money they've got, the time they've got. The worst thing for me, though, is the competitive nature. So as footballers, you shouldn't be a professional footballer unless you're um, unless you're obviously like if you're going to lose football matches and you're happy to lose. You shouldn't be playing because you're competitive people. As soon as you go into the world of gambling, if you're happy to lose a bet as a footballer, I would be surprised because that competitive streak kicks in and you think, right, I'm going to make sure that I win the next bet. You might have two, three, four, five bets. You've obviously ruined your finance of money for maybe January. You go into February on the back foot. You've now ruined two months of finances. And the way that I describe it to footballers is that I was on the back foot for 10 and a half years. I never got back to even. I never made money from gambling. Um and that for them, they sort of kind of sit there and you see some of them nodding their head. And I can see some of them kind of computing in their mind and, and in their brain as if to say, I need to speak to this guy. And I can pick them in a crowd. I can pick them out. And then lo and behold, a couple of days later, I might get a text or a phone call, um, a Twitter message, something like that, saying, Scott, you did a talk the other day or at X, Y or Z club. Um, can I have a chat? And I was like, I knew you'd text me because you can see signs in people. They can't make eye contact with you. Um they feel a bit sort of sheepish, a little bit fidgety. And the worst thing is that everyone in that change room knows people that gamble. 
Um, they kind of point them out when I'm walking to the room. They'll go, oh, this lad needs to chat to you, Scott. And I'm like, lads, just calm it. Because you never know what people are going through. And that's, that's, the, that's the painful thing. So I try and take away any sort of shame um, and any of the banter and bravado. Because if someone had kind of pointed me out to a bloke that walked in the room to do a gambling session, I would have felt so uncomfortable at the time. Um, so, I, yeah, basically, I'm just in here for them to talk to. And it, and it really does work. It's so, it's so important, isn't it? I think having people that you relate to, like for footballers, I'm not a footballer. I, I, you know, footballers have a certain way. I know from my brother's experiences in uh, ex-army, he says a normal counsellor's never been shot at. So, yeah. if they, you know, that's the same thing. You, you have to have somebody to relate to, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. I show, I, I'm so happy and so pleased and not bothered, I guess, to show my vulnerability. I don't yeah. mind telling people what I did and what I got up to because... We've had 166 players come forward now and said, Scott, do you know what? I need help. And for me, that's great because it's 166 players that would never have said it before. Um, Whether they're at one end of the spectrum or the other, they're they're on that spectrum and needing some sort of help. Whether it's uh, having a chat or going to rehab, obviously they're two different ends, but it just opens opens up those avenues of talking and we don't do it enough as men um, or women. Like we always say about men not talking, but there's still plenty of women that don't talk. Um, I think it's a society problem where we try and obviously take down those barriers and I love talking more than anyone now and I, as much as I get satisfaction from football um, it's equal measure when I get satisfaction from someone reaching out to me uh, to try and get help as well That's brilliant and I for, for some for non-footballers what I mean, I'm some over in the UK but like what support is there for, for people going through gambling issues you know that um, where they can reach out to yeah, of course. I think one thing that I'll always say is that I'm not a treatment provider because yeah. if I say that I'm sort of going to here to to cure all your problems, I'd be crazy because I'm not qualified in doing that. Um, the one thing I can do is give my advice, which I believe is is good advice. Is helped on a number of occasions. Um, so people can reach out to me if anyone's listening to this podcast. Um, I've actually had quite a number of young Reading fans that have reached out over the past few years, okay. um, which is quite astonishing, really. Um, so people can reach out to me, fly into my inbox on Twitter and things like that. And I'll always reply. I'll make sure that I always do. Might take me a day or two at the moment trying to get transfers over the line. Um, otherwise, you can you can go so many different websites. Um, you can go online, um, the National Problem Gambling Helpline. You can go on GamCare. You can put things on your phone like GamStop and GamBan um, to actually ban you from going on betting apps on your phone, which is a great, it's a great, um, great obviously way to try and um, stem the flow of your gambling, which is which is brilliant. Um, but there's so many different things. But I would always say to someone if you're if you're encountering a problem with it, just speak to someone um, because the react the reaction is never as bad as the the fear because you always yeah. fear that they're going to react so badly. But you feel so much better that you've told someone that you're struggling. Um, when I actually reached out to my mum. It was after I found myself stood in my kitchen with a knife against my chest in 2015 and I was at my rock bottom. Um, I was self-harming and I remember being in floods of tears, crying my eyes out. And I went around to my mum and I said to her, I was like, listen, I need help. I think I'm having a breakdown. And um, she just said to me, thank God you finally admitted it. And that wasn't the reaction that I expected. I expected her to hit the roof. I expected her to go crazy, but she's my mum. She's the best person on this planet, along with my dad, like in my eyes, where... They've given me all the help that I need. Um, and I was so worried that I was going to sort of let them down um, by telling them that I'd done X, Y and Z. And the reaction was completely different. All they wanted to do was help. And I'm sure most parents, friends and family will be exactly the same with anyone going through any types of trouble like that. 
it's just that initial conversation, isn't it? And I think that's the, the thing that people, when they're struggling, isn't it? They don't know how to help. They don't know who to ask for help. But someone, someone will always listen, won't they? Yeah, Anyone? so many people. Like, I'm a massive advocate for it now. And I probably engage in conversations that are awkward for people at times because I'll see a change in behaviour or um, a change in their characteristics. And I'll go and nudge them and I'll say, right, come on, what's going on? Like, talk to me. And sometimes they'll be like, no, 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 I'm fine. And I'll sort of kind of grab them. I'll go, no, listen, talk to me. What's going on? I can see that you're quiet. You're a little bit reserved. You're a little bit removed from the group. 30 seconds later, they're pouring their heart out. So it could be about anything. It could be about finance. It could be about relationships, their kids, whatever it is. But talking's great. And then after, you always get a text. Oh, do you know what, mate? I really appreciate that. And that's what we need to do um, as a whole, like all of us. But people are uncomfortable in having those conversations, whether it's, initiating them or whether it's having them and I think I'm always the one that tries to initiate them now because I'd rather ask someone the question than to um than to miss out on something that's might be causing someone harm yeah definitely I uh, kind of um going going for kind of sidetracking back to the football bit there what as as I'm watching Reading this season what what do you make of things at the club at the minute or do I dare ask (laughs) uh it's a strange one as well so there's another telltale to this so my wife is actually um a personal assistant for Scott Dan so he's got a few different businesses outside of football and she's his personal assistant so I hear a lot of the stuff that kind of goes on and he speaks really highly of the club and it's a great club and I know he's been sort of frustrated and blighted by injuries for the last 18 months which has been a real sort of bugbear of his um but then he was talking to me about the caliber of players and the strength of the squad that they've got and then I looked obviously there was a bit of a bad run wasn't there with obviously results injuries and things like that and they were really unfortunate um but I actually think the most important thing for Reading was to try and stay up to try and stay in the league obviously that would have been huge it would have been massive because I think the squad is there to to actually challenge next year um, but obviously with what's happened, I, I think that it might be a blessing in disguise in so many ways because sometimes you need that rebuild, that focus, that winning mentality. And if they don't have that sort of winning mentality in, in League One, then you probably don't deserve to to have that success. But a club that size with the players that hopefully they can retain and, and whatnot um, should be a force to be reckoned with. And I think sometimes fans would rather see their club winning Um and that's the difference. Would you rather stay in a championship and struggle or would you rather go down the league and, and, and be used to winning games? So it's that little conundrum, I guess, that the fans are trying to get over at the moment. But I can see I can see them returning pretty soon, to be honest. Another thing is we're going back to, you know, just sort of early 2000s when we had that rebuild then and that momentum from League One carried on into the championship and the premiership. So it can be done, can't it? And one, yeah. of, the, one of the guys um, that's been linked with the job, Chris Wilder, you actually played under, didn't you, um, back in, in Oxford? What was he like as a coach legend. for you? Absolute legend. Like, honestly, like I didn't, I spent what, about 13, no, maybe, maybe about 13, 14 months with him, I think. Um, so it was like the back end of the season and then the majority of the next season. Um, honestly, one of the best people I've met in football. Um, just a brilliant person in terms of, Man management in and around the place, polite, honest, and I say honest in a, in a weird way that he'll tell you when you've done well, but when you've not done well, you'll hear about it. But you respect him because he is black and white. He's exactly how you want it to be. He doesn't sort of butter things up. Um, he'll make you feel uncomfortable at times. He'll make you feel on top of the world at times. But I, I think he's a brilliant guy. I really do. And I actually bumped into him for the first time 
uh, a couple of years ago at the EFL Awards do at the end of the season in, up in London. And it was like we'd been, we were best mates for 20 years and we hadn't seen each other for a few years, but we certainly weren't. He was my manager and I was his player, but he just couldn't have been any more welcoming when I saw him. Um, a lot different to other managers uh, because he's got a human side to him. Whereas I felt like other managers were maybe a little bit unapproachable at times. Um, when you see their door and it's got sort of like manager's office on the door, you think, right, I'm going to run past that as quick as I can. Don't ever want to go in there. Whereas he'll come sit down on the sofa with like the rest of us, the lads at the football club, have a chat about life, have a chat about your girlfriend, have a chat about nights out at the weekend. And it just makes things normal. Um, I think he would be an incredible appointment. I really do. Um, And the the players maybe that haven't been pulling their weight as such will start pulling their weight under someone like him because you just can't cut corners. And not only that, he's not the kind of manager that you don't want to run through brick walls for. He's the complete opposite where you think, do you know what? He's a likeable guy, treats people fairly. And all of a sudden you'll still see players that maybe wouldn't want to run for a brick wall. All of a sudden they're running through two, three, four brick walls. And that's the difference. So I think it'd be a great appointment. Um, is it pretty close to getting done? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Sure, really- not sure. It's been talked about. I think he's six to one on favourite, and then they're on about an appointment. You know, that's uh, talking about gambling. That's still talking about that. I can, yeah, <laughs> I talk about it still. Yeah. But no, I honestly, I couldn't speak any highly of him. And I'm always honest, like I say, if it was someone that I didn't like or if I had a different opinion, I'd say. Um, yeah. But yeah, honestly, I'd, I'd hang my hat on him all day long. Would he be your the favourite? Your favourite manager to work on? I mean, obviously you, you dealt with you know, dealt with Steve and Brian as well. What were they like? I've had so many different ones. So I had Gary Waddock that was great for me in my younger days at Aldershot, um, yeah. who took me over there with Martin Cole, who was my under 15 manager at Reading, um, who was absolutely brilliant for me. He he allowed me to play football with no pressure um, out of all the managers that I've had. Brendan was more of a tactical genius, coaching genius, made it enjoyable. Steve, I didn't really know, to be honest. Um, I was a young pro, sort of training with the first team every now and again. Um didn't find him too approachable at times because I probably respected him so much that I thought I don't really know what to say to him. Probably got a bit nervous around him. Uh, Brian McDermott, weird one. Um, Brian, I couldn't, I couldn't love anymore. Um, like now, because I speak to him three, four times a week, he's become a really good friend at the time as a manager. Um, I probably let, I probably let him down. Um, not that I let him down on the pitch because he didn't play me, um, but I'd probably let him down sort of Monday to Friday in the way that I was conducting myself. And as we both know now, I was going through my problems. He was going through his problems. We've had so many deep conversations over the last two years since he's reached out to me. Um, so I didn't speak to him for 10 years. And yeah. over the last two years, our friendship's been, um, yeah, it's been worth his weight in gold. Uh, he's been He's been brilliant for me, especially with... Obviously, the recovery side of gambling, we've had some really good chats about that. But now also the management side as well, uh, being at Slough, um, he's been brilliant, uh, sort of an ear, ear for me to turn to, to get advice. And um, yeah, we speak probably, I'd say two or three times a week, um, which I never thought would happen. I always thought, that's Brian McDermott. Like, you don't speak to him, like he's the manager. Because yeah, you, yeah, you put them on this pedestal. But the more I've got to know Brian, it's weird. I wish I'd have known him like that sort of 10, 12 years ago. And I think he really could have been good for me. I think he I think he could have got the best out of me. But um, yeah, now he's become a great mate. And I think if there's any substitution for me not doing what I did at Reading and not playing as many games, I'm, I'm glad to have him as a friend because, uh, yeah, he's been he's been really worthwhile. 
That's brilliant. He's such a good guy. That brings us on to, to where you are now, Scott. Management. Did you expect to ever become a football manager? Was it one of your ambitions or was it just like, wow, I'm here? Yeah, do you know what, Johnny? It was. So um, I've always been interested in the man management side of the game because like the managers I've had, so as a young player, like Gary Waddock, Steve Koppel, Brendan Rodgers, Chris Wilder, I've had Steve Evans, who's at Stevenage. Um, I had him at Crawley. I've had all different types of managers. And I look back and I've seen how they've not only managed me, but managed other players in different situations and scenarios. And I'm thinking, I could never do that to someone. Or I couldn't speak to him like that. Or actually, do you know what? He's right. And I've always been interested in um, the man management side of it. The coaching, not so much. So when the managers at Slough decided to depart in November, uh, the board came to me and said, we want to give you the job. And I was a little bit bemused. I was a little bit baffled. And I thought, hang on a minute. Like, where's this come from? I uh, spoke to Brian McDermott uh, and said, Brian, what do I do? And uh, he said, what do you mean? I said, I've just been offered the job at Slough. And he went, what are you waiting for? And I said, what do you mean? He said, just do it. And there was a, there was an expletive in the middle of that. So I was like, okay, cheers, no problem. I put the phone down, I rang Slough back and I was like, right, I'll do it. Because I'd heard from my parents that they said I should do it. Um, but then I wanted to speak to someone whose opinion I valued as a manager. And obviously, Brian, there's no better person to speak to. So I spoke to a few of my old managers. Um, they all said, Scott, just do it. And I've done it for, what, seven or eight months now. It's been exhausting, but I've loved it. Um, I found like it's compulsive. Being an addictive gambler at the time, I feel like I can easily get quite compulsive over things quickly. Um, but what I've also got is a drive of determination to try and do well um, and try and make try and make amends for, I guess, for what I missed out in my playing career and try and now make it up in my management career. But there's a lot more that goes on than maybe what people realise as a manager. Um, obviously, trying to fit this podcast in today, it was hard work, wasn't it? <laughs> trying to find time, um, going out and meeting players every night and things like that. So, yeah, it's great. It's great. And um, I can obviously be a manager to these players. I'm still playing so I can be a teammate. But I also want to be a father figure uh, to some of the younger lads or a role model as such. Um, yeah. And just try and treat them maybe differently to how I got treated when I was a young player. And, and you know, you kept kept him up last season, which is great. And what's your, you know, for, for this season coming up? In non-league, I mean, it's very different football to, you know, um, the championship and whatever. As a manager, what's the biggest challenge for you? Oh, that's such a good question. For me, for me, it's picking 11 players. Um, I wish that I could field 16, 17 players every week and just say, right, you're all playing, everyone's happy, go out there and do the business. But... It's the heartache when you drop a player. Um, I think people think at times that there's no thought process or it's personal. It never is. Um, The hardest thing is dragging someone to the side and say, I know you've played the last four games, you've scored a couple of goals, but for tomorrow we're going to drag you out of the team. And it's their reaction. It breaks me because I'd like to think that I've got an emotional side um, and I don't like to obviously disappoint people. The one thing that I'll do, though, is I'll always be honest. And I think that's where the lads kind of respect me in that situation, because sometimes you don't always get honesty from managers. They'll tell you what you want to hear rather than what you need to be told. Um, So that's the hardest part for me. Um, And I think the other difficult part is probably the player management role. So when I'm obviously playing at the same time and trying to manage, there's like a thousand things going through my head. And the only time that that's quite comfortable in doing that is when we're winning the game. Everything's fine when you're winning. Like you think, oh, this is easy. When you're losing a game, you feel like you've got a thousand people that are staring at the side of your head thinking, what are you going to do to change it? So 
um that's the hardest part um but if my recruitment's good this summer then I'll I'll see if I'm going to play as much or not next year I'm not sure yet do you think you, 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 you're going to have to step back eventually I think you have to drop yourself yeah, did, so you know what Johnny it's, it's Brian's fault again so he said to me he said, it's quite simple Scott he said if you improve the team you play he said you pick yourself he said if you don't improve the team you don't play and I was thinking such good advice it's so basic but it's yeah. such good advice and yeah. I still feel like I've got a lot to offer. Um, I'm 35 now, but touch wood, I've, I've only missed two games in nine seasons for injury. So I've been right. very, very lucky with injury. So my body, I feel like a, I probably feel 27, 28. Um, I played 40, I think I started 44 games last year. Um, so I'm, I'm ready to go again. Um, but if it means that I've brought someone in that I think is better than me and it allows me to manage, I'm, I'm happy to do that because it's not the Scott Davis show. It never will be. Um, it never has been. Um, so yeah, it's just trying to find that balance of getting results and finding out whether I play or whether I don't is that little conundrum. And it, like you know, as, as a you know, again as a fan, you know, you being a manager, is it a glamorous job doing what you do? Is it a lot of hard work? You know, you see the guys sitting there, you know, the top managers doing what you're you're out looking for players. What's the kind of a normal busy a normal working day for you? In the yeah, season? I'd, I'd say like in terms of. In terms of it being glamorous, I, I don't know about that. I think the one thing that we've got at Slough is a fan base that allow me to just give it a go. And that might sound quite strange, but they're not on my back. They're not abusive. Um, yeah. they're, they're always so supportive. And that's great for me as a young manager because I will make mistakes and I have made mistakes. But then we've also had some great days and some great results where people give you a pat on the back. But I'll always be the first to say it's never about me. I can pick 11 players to go out there and half the time, the fans might pick the same eleven, but it's how I set them up, maybe how I talk to them. But then it's down to them to do do the job. But I'll get the plaudits for it, which is pretty strange at times when I think about it. Um, so I, I've always said I'll only ever be as good as my players allow me to be, because they're the ones really that allow me to keep my job or not. In terms of a normal working week, is that I've obviously got my Monday to Friday job, traveling around the country, telling my story. Um, Tuesday night we obviously have training seven o'clock for an hour and a half on the same on a Thursday night match day on a Saturday but sometimes I'll skip training go and watch matches on Tuesdays and Thursdays out again Thursday night wife hates me um, so yeah she, she's she been brilliant as well so um, she knows that I wanted to give management a go but I'm probably two or three levels higher than what I expected and probably two or three years sooner than what I thought I'd go into management. So we're step two of non-league. I thought I might go in at maybe step four or step five at the age of 38, 39. Um, but once opportunity arises, I couldn't turn it down. Um, it's yeah. such a fantastic club. I know that <laughs> I know it's down the road and there might, might be a small rivalry, if anything. But um, for me, it's the perfect fit. I've got really supportive um, fans, the board, the owners um, and the players as well, which is important. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really good fit. I'm loving it. Um, and I can't wait for the season to get going already on board. So, yeah. like, were you like, last question? Were you when you came in at that level as a manager? Were you surprised? Was it easier than you thought? I don't say like, the best way, but you know, you're thinking you're kind of coming at a lower level, but you come at this, you go, oh. The only the only good thing is is that you're working with better players than what I assumed yeah. that I would be if I went in at a lower level, and that can sometimes be difficult because your thinking might not be aligned. Um, you might be asking lesser players to try and do things that they are not capable of. But we've got some really good players in our team that are quite receptive. They take information on board. Um, whereas I can imagine 
and a few levels lower, it could be frustrating. I certainly don't think it's easy. Um, even though we had a really good end to the season or a second half of the season, there was a massive improvement. Um, yeah, I'd be stupid to think it was easy. And I think going into next season, it's probably the strongest the Conference South has been for years and years, yeah. maybe ever. Um, you've obviously got people like Torquay and Yeovil coming down. And that's, that, yeah, that's scary in itself. Like the size of those clubs. Um, then you've got other clubs in our league like Maidstone and Dartford that have got incredible resource um, that they can go out and spend money like, yeah, like like we don't have. Um, but what we have got is a culture and environment that we've created. Um, that's a special place to be. And I've had it a few times in my career where I've been in change rooms that have been enjoyable to walk into. Um, and we've certainly got one at Slough and I think that can get you 15, 20 points a season. I think the Reading team of 2000, and, was it 2004? Yeah, 2005, yeah. So that team, I honestly feel as though they probably got 15, 20 points that season because of the environment as well. Even yeah. though they were a great side, um, I saw how tight-knit they were and how close a group of friends they were, um, with the exception of maybe one or two. But um, but yeah, that, that, that bodes so well when you go onto the pitch, like a band of brothers and... I know the old cliches you go to war for each other, but it's so, so true. You can get so much more out of a good culture and a good environment. And that's what we try and build ourselves on at Slough. And I like going to finish up there. Like you talk about the change from culture. Like at Reading, you know, the last few years, we really lacked in leaders. And, you know, some, you know, we've had so many bad results. And you're like, where's, where's the, the, the team spirit? How do you create that? As, or is it or half of it already there and you just add to it as a manager? Do you know what? I think Reading have been spoiled over the years, to be honest, because you look at the group of like 2005, obviously like Mert, City, Harps, Blakey, all of those sorts of people, like just brilliant people, brilliant players. Then you look at the, is it 2011-12 team, like with Joby, Jem, uh, Matt Mills, they're all like leaders and they're all good people. I'm not saying that the new ones aren't because I don't know them personally, um, but that breeds success. But it's all obviously about identifying players. And I think sometimes when you get foreign managers that come into a football club, they don't know the sort of hard, the core of group in terms of like having um, a 50% like British players that know the league, understand the league. They set the environment in the changing room because you can easily get a foreign manager come in and bring over 50% of foreign players. You do lose that core. You do yeah. lose that core. And it's so, so important to try and keep it. And if you look at those two teams where the success has been had, there's a massive, massive, massive group of homegrown players that lead the change room. And then you can add in the one and two here of, of foreign quality that they're bringing over from France or Belgium or Germany or whatever. Um, and I think if you look more often than not at the clubs that have that, I think Burnley have done it brilliantly this year. If you look at the people like Jack Cork and Ashley Barnes, um, like Connor Roberts, Lowton, people like that, they've got that core and added a bit of quality. Sheffield United, prime example, whereas you look at a Watford that have got predominantly foreign players, they don't understand the championship and what it takes. Yeah. So I, I've always been a big believer that you almost need to have people that understand the values and the cultures and what it takes to be successful in the league. And I think Brian and Steve were two people that completely epitomised knowing what that was. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's been lovely speaking to you, Scott. It really has. I'll just say, like, you know, we had one manager from Slough who didn't too, do too bad at Reading, did we? So maybe down the line, you never know. Yeah. Well, that's what Brian was saying to me. He said he took over the Slough job. I think he was 38. Um, he said, and then 13 years later or something, he was manager at Reading the Premier League. So by my maths, to, uh, 2036, I should be there. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. No, thanks, 
Thanks for having me on. I appreciate yeah. that. It's been really good. And and just for listeners, on Monday evening, we're having a, a special on mental health um, in football uh, with some of the Reading fans and uh, players, people associated with the club. Um, so please join us for that one. And as again, Scott, thank you so much for the your time today. No, it's been great to have me. Cheers, guys. Sports Social Podcast Network.